Mark chapter 6, verses 14 to 29. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. When Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Well, so is this reading from God's holy and infallible and inspired word. May he add his blessing and the illumination of his spirit to it. Well, this is a pretty graphic and grisly story, but it's also really intriguing because if you look at Mark chapter 6, you could look at verse 13 where we were last month, and you could go from verse 13 to verse 30 of Mark chapter 6 with no break. It makes total sense. It just continues on what we read in verse 13. And so, Mark 14 to 29, our passage tonight, is inserted here. And it's here, not randomly, Mark's not not just looking for a place to plop this in, but it's here for a reason. It has an important message for us to hear. So think about the structure of these verses. If you look, look at verses 14 to 16. Herod hears reports of the mission of Jesus, and especially the mission as it's been carried out, by uh, Jesus' disciples, and Herod wonders about the identity of who this person is. That's a key thing to realize when you're thinking about what is the point of these verses. Herod wonders about the identity of Jesus. And there are three possibilities mentioned. Those are this, that he is John the Baptist who has risen from the dead. That's one possibility. Or he is Elijah, the famous Old Testament prophet who's come back. Or he is more generally, one of the prophets of old. Those are the three possibilities that are popular, that are mentioned here, that are going around in uh, the land of Israel during that time. But you see, 
In verse 16, Herod's conclusion is this. He is John the Baptist. Here's what Herod says. John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. So that's verses 14 to 16. And then in verses 17 to 29, the rest of the passage, there's a flashback. You could even think of it as a flashback in Herod's own mind, his own memory of everything leading up to the beheading of John. So, when you hear this passage, our tendency is to think that this is a passage about John the Baptist. But who's the main character in these verses, verses 14 to 29? It's not John the Baptist. It's Herod. Herod's the main character. His point of view is the one that we see in these verses. So Herod's the main character. What is the main question? The main question is this. It's the question that Jesus will ask his disciples and the question that Jesus asked each one of us. Who do you say that I am? That's the main thing. Verses 14 to 16 shows us the main question. Who do you say that Jesus is? Here is one answer. It's Herod's answer. It's wrong, but it is Herod's answer. Who do you say that I am? And so that's a theme for Mark's gospel. Mark will continue to answer this question in uh, ways through various characters that are incorrect, but in a, in a very important way, a way that is absolutely correct. Who do you say that I am? This is Jesus' question for us, just as it was for Herod, just as it was for everyone who he encountered in the Gospel of Mark. But this time we see an answer through the eyes of Herod. And Herod answers through eyes that are filled with guilt and fear, and maybe even a little paranoia. He's paranoid. This, this is not a normal thing for John the Baptist to return to haunt Herod, but that's what he settles on as the answer. John the Baptist has come back. And because Herod answers this question through eyes of guilt and fear and paranoia, he misses the right answer. So this whole passage, even though it seems to be only indirectly related to Jesus, is all about Jesus is all about answering that question, who is Jesus? And so we're going to answer it in various ways through these verses. So the first answer to the question, who is Jesus, is this. Jesus is the only hope for a guilty conscience. Now we have to back up a little bit. Because Herod's the main character, Herod's the one with a guilty conscience. Who is Herod? That's a really important question. Uh, the main question of this sermon is, who is Jesus? But to get to that, you have to answer the question, who is Herod? And this is complicated because this was a huge family. Herod and his brothers, his father, his nephew, all of them were in positions of power and authority. This was a big, influential family in the Holy Land at that time. There were many people in that family who were all referred to as Herod. And some of them share the same first names. It's very, very confusing. In our own time, a little bit closer to our own time at least, you can think of the Kennedy family. Uh, there are lots of people who are in positions of power and authority in our fairly recent history who have had the last name of Kennedy, and they're all related. Some of them, like Herod's family, even have the same first name. In fact, just last week, there was a commercial from Robert F. Kennedy, who's running for president, that was uh, using past advertisements for his father and his uncle, one of whom became president and the other of whom ran for president. 
And people were up in arms because he's using this name to advance his campaign. It's a very, very effective commercial, uh, but it's a similar story. The Kennedy family, think about the Bush family. There are three George Bush, uh, at least, as far as I know, there are three people in that family named George Bush who all have held positions of power and authority. So it's a similar thing that's going on here. So the Herod that you read about in the opening chapters of Matthew is not the same as the Herod who we read about here, who is not the same as the Herod who we read about later in Acts 12. So it's very confusing, but let me cut through all the fog. This Herod is Herod Antipas. He's the son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great is the king who you read about in Matthew 2, who was very disturbed by reports of the birth of Jesus. This is his son, Herod Antipas. Uh, he is, Herod Antipas is the uncle of Herod Agrippa, who's the Herod we read about in Acts 12. And none of them uh, get the right answer to the key question of their day of who is Jesus. Herod Antipas in Mark 6 was not really a king in the technical official sense, but he was a ruler. He was the recognized ruler over Galilee at that time. And so he would have been very interested in people like John the Baptist and in Jesus, who were popular figures for all the people who Herod supposedly ruled. Herod Antipas was Edomite. He was one of the uh, non-Jewish people in the land of that time. He was descended from the Edomites, but he was raised Jewish. One of his ancestors had converted. He was raised to be uh, Jewish in his religious outlook, but he was also educated in Rome. He went all the way from Israel to Rome, and his family came to power thanks, at least in part, to how close they were with the family of Julius Caesar. And so that's this whole convoluted, complicated story about how Herod Antipas, who we read about in Mark 6, came into power. But the key issue and the source of all of his guilt and his guilty conscience was the fact that he was married to Herodias. And Herodias, you can see based on her name, also had some connections to his family already, had previously been married to Herod's own brother, who was not dead, but was still living. And so it's very convoluted, very complicated. And Herod Antipas knew, based on his own knowledge of the Old Testament, but also based on John the Baptist's constant reminders, that what he was doing was sinful. It was not right. According to Leviticus 18, it is not right for you to marry your brother's wife, especially if that brother is still alive. It's not good. It's not right. And so you see that John, in his day, and Jesus, who comes into greater and greater influence in that land after John, both inflame Herod's guilty conscience. Herod knows that he's a sinner, and he kind of wants to suppress it and tamp it down and not think about it too much, but he knows it's the case. And he has these two, John and Jesus, who inflame that guilty conscience. Look at verse 20. It says there, Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Now John has a message 
from scripture for Herod that what he's doing is sinful. His relationship with Herodias is not right. But also, John has his very own character, that he was a holy and a righteous man. And Jesus, even more so, John is not the son of God. John the Baptist is a mere man who is, in a special way, holy and righteous. He is like one of the prophets of the Old Testament. But Jesus is holy, holiness and righteousness personified. And they both inflame Herod's guilty conscience. I don't know if you know this, as a pastor, multiple times in my life, people have uh, been around me and associated with me, and then they've found out that I'm a pastor, and the first thing that they do, you might guess, is that they apologize for the language that they've used. Right? This happens more than you might think. People find out you're a pastor and say, oh, I'm sorry for the way I've used foul language. People have this sense, even with you know, someone who I hope comes off as fairly normal, uh, that the way that they're doing things, the way that they're speaking is not right. And they feel guilty, even a little bit guilty, guilty enough to apologize. That's in a small way what we see going on with Herod. Herod knows the way he's living is not right. And so uh, he fears John because he knows John is holy and righteous. He fears Jesus, who he thinks is John risen from the dead because he knows that Jesus is holy and righteous. So Herod has a guilty conscience. And yet, Herod is also enslaved to sin. You can see this in various ways in this passage. He is enslaved to the sin of lust. If you read this about Herodias' daughter dancing. You don't know, we don't know the details, but I promise you, it's creepy. What's going on is creepy. It's not, it's not right. It's not pure. It's not innocent. It is a creepy thing that Herod and his guests are so pleased with this dance that he promises to give her whatever she asks for up to half his kingdom. It is creepy. Herod is enslaved. He's also enslaved to pride. Do you see that in multiple ways? He doesn't want to be embarrassed in front of his guests. He's made this promise, and even when it turns out that uh, the daughter asks for something that he really uh, is exceedingly sorrowful about following through on, he does it anyway, because he doesn't want to lose face in front of his guests who are the elite of that area. But he's also more deeply fearful of others. He is willing to have John killed to please Herodias, and to please her daughter. He is not willing to stand on principle. Even things he knows are true. He knows John is righteous. He knows John is holy. He knows John is a preacher of the truth. And he's not willing to stand for that truth because he is enslaved to sin. And here's what J.C. Ryle says, using Herod as an example. He says, fallen and corrupt as man is, there are thoughts within him accusing or excusing, according as he lives, thoughts that will not be shut out, thoughts that can make even kings like Herod restless and afraid. And if that's true of Herod, it's true for all of us. All of us have guilty consciences. We know in some way or another, even if we're able to put on a good, holy, righteous front, that we're not living exactly as we should live. We are not holy and righteous the way that we should be. We have guilty consciences, and that's good. 
Sometimes in our era, you say, well, anything that makes you feel guilty, you should get that out of your life. Separate yourself, distance yourself from those things. But a guilty conscience is a good gift from God that points to our problem. It's, it's fine to have a guilty conscience if you are, in fact, guilty. That's something God has given you. And if you go according to God's law, revealed in his word, and all of us are guilty of sin in thought or word or deed, even the most righteous person in this room should have a guilty conscience because none of us are exactly what we should be. And so who is Jesus? Jesus is the only, the only hope for those who have guilty consciences. And Herod missed that. Herod missed the fact of the message of John the Baptist that we read in another gospel, in the gospel of John, the other John. John the Baptist cries out when he sees Jesus, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so if you have a guilty conscience, go to Jesus. He's your only hope. He's the only hope of those who know how sinful they are. So that's the first answer to the question, who is Jesus? The second answer to who is Jesus is this. He is the true king. Do you see? There's supposed to be a contrast here between Herod and Jesus. It it doesn't come out uh, right on the surface, but if you think about the way things are structured and why these verses are right here, it's pretty apparent. In every uh, every time this passage shows up in Mark or in Matthew or in Luke, what comes right after it is the feeding of the 5,000. So we'll come back to that. But here's the contrast. Herod is a king in sort of name. He's not really a king, but he is a ruler. But he is unrighteous. He's unholy. He imprisons his enemies, even those who are as minor and seemingly non-threatening as John. He's so troubled by John the Baptist and his conviction of sin that comes when he hears John, he puts him in prison. In verses 21 to 28, you have this picture of a corrupt, depraved royal banquet that's intended to impress. It's intended to impress Herod's VIP guests. And so what Mark shows us here is the way that kings lived in the world at that time. Kings were not servants, they were masters, and they uh, served themselves. They, uh, they took what wasn't theirs to make life easier for themselves and harder for others. That's the way kings lived. This is the way pagan kings went about their rule. This is made very clear, I think, because notice what Herod asks the daughter of Herodias. He asks her, just name whatever you, will, you would like and I will give it to you. And how does he qualify that? He'll say, I'll give you anything you ask up to half of my kingdom. Do you know where else that same line is used? It's used in Esther. Way back a few hundred years before these events, Xerxes, Esther comes into the presence of Xerxes, who is her husband. She is one of his many wives, but he is pleased by Esther. And what does he say? Ask of me whatever you wish, and I will give it to you up to half of my kingdom. It's the same question, the same promise. And so I think Mark is telling us 
But this is the way that kings live. They, they live not to serve others. We have this image of, of kings and queens. Think of Queen Elizabeth, uh, who just recently passed away. She was known for her great service. Think of the royal family in the United Kingdom today. They're, they're known for going and uh, raising money for those in need, for going and serving. They serve in their nation's armed forces. They are all about charitable uh, work. And that's the way things are today because things have been totally transformed by one actual true king. But this is before that transformation happens. This is the way kings lived in the ancient world for themselves. They said, your life for mine. I want your life so that my life can be better and easier. But the contrast comes with Jesus. Jesus is presented as the true king. Think about everything we've seen in Mark's gospel so far. Jesus has true authority to heal and true authority to free people from the oppression of demons. That's everything in Mark's gospel so far. Jesus heals, Jesus casts out demons and sets people free. And then right after this passage, we have the feeding of the 5,000. While Herod holds a banquet for the elite who he wants to impress, Jesus feeds the masses with simple food that they need because they are hungry. If you look ahead a little bit to chapter 6, verse 34, it says there of Jesus, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so I think the implication here is that Jesus is the true king and the true pattern for what kings should be. Jesus is the king. That's clearly a message for Mark's gospel. And for the Christian faith as a whole. Jesus is the king. He really is the one who rules over everything and he rules in a very different way than the way we think kings rule in our world. And so if Jesus is the king, that brings us to another question. Who is John? Well, Herod was kind of on the right track, just a little bit off. John the Baptist is, Jesus says, he is Elijah who was promised to come before the great day of the Lord. John the Baptist is like one of the prophets of the Old Testament. He is a messenger. Here's what it says in Mark 1. If you think back to Mark 1, verses 2 to 3, it talks about John the Baptist coming, and it quotes from Isaiah, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And look down to Mark 1, verse 7. And John preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. So Herod was kind of on the right track, but he misidentified both John and Jesus. John is all those things that he said. John is the one who was sent as the messenger to prepare the way of the Lord. But Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is the king who has come. So that's the second answer. First, Jesus is the only salvation, the only hope for those with a guilty conscience. Second, Jesus is the true king. But third, third answer to who is Jesus is that he is the one who came to die. And Herod and John, and their story foreshadows what will happen to Jesus. Both John and Jesus will be killed. 
John was killed because he preached an inconvenient truth. In John's case, that inconvenient truth was the truth about sin, the truth about Herod's sin, but also he preached repentance for sin to all the people. He was a preacher of repentance. And Jesus carried on that message, but Jesus not only declared the truth about sin and the truth about us as sinners, he declared the truth about his own identity. He said, I am the one you've been waiting for. I am the one who the messenger goes ahead of. I am the Lord. I am God in the flesh. So John died in this grisly, gruesome way. But Jesus also died in a way that is given way more focus in Mark's gospel and all the other gospels than John the Baptist's death because it's way more important. It's what John was preparing the way for. John was preparing the way for a king who came to die. He not only feeds the people, he not only teaches the people, he not only heals the people and casts out demons, but he dies for the people. He is the king who came to serve by laying down his life. And Herod is kind of paranoid. It's not very reasonable for Herod to think, well, this is John. John has risen from the dead. He's come back and he's come to haunt me and to judge me and to hunt me down. That's what Herod was thinking. But he was still on the right track, just about the wrong person. John died and was buried. Jesus died and was buried. But on the third day, Jesus did rise again. Jesus is the conquering king who will come as the judge, but today offers himself as the savior. Will you come to him and know salvation? No salvation through the one who is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John, the Baptist, was a messenger, but Jesus is the fulfillment of that message. And so you see, in these verses, the focus really isn't on John the Baptist. He provides the opportunity for Herod to wrestle with these questions. But the real question for Herod is, who is Jesus? Who do you say that I am? Herod answered that question poorly and wrongly and incorrectly. But all of us have to answer that question with some sort of conviction. And here, if you fast forward in Mark's gospel, here is the right answer. The same themes come up as they come up in Mark 6, but here's Mark 8, 27 to 29. You can turn there to look at it. It says there, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? Does that sound familiar? And they told him, Does this sound familiar? John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets, those three options, none of which are really correct. And so Jesus says, and he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. That's the only right answer. You are the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, the King who has come, who is here, who comes not to uh, rule over others, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So do you see, even this passage that's seemingly plopped right here and it could just go anywhere, but it's here for this purpose, 
to bring us back to John, to Mark's main message in his gospel. You must answer the question, who is Jesus? And your eternal salvation depends on getting the right answer. And Mark gives you the right answer. Jesus is the Christ. He is the only one who can save you from a guilty conscience. He is the only true king. And he saves us by dying for us, by dying in our place. So bring your guilty conscience to him and know that in him you will find perfect salvation and forgiveness and freedom, not just from the power of sin, not just from the penalty of sin, but eventually in glory from even the presence of sin. You will be saved completely and you will have a new king who is the only true king who will reign forever and ever and his kingdom will never have an end. So don't be like Herod. That's a good message, simple message. Don't be like Herod. He got the wrong answer because he was so clouded over by his own guilt and fear and paranoia. Get the right answer. And the only right answer is that Jesus is the Christ and John is the messenger who goes before him. So let's pray together that Holy Spirit might take these words and apply them to our hearts. Let's pray. Father, we give you praise for your word. We thank you for its truth. We thank you for its clear, central message about Jesus and the salvation that's found only in him. And may we be found in him, not having a righteousness that is our own, but a righteousness that comes from him and is received by faith. Would you do that work in us by your spirit, applying your word, we ask now in Jesus' name, amen.